uh, pick up where we were supposed to be last week, um, but we're going to jump into, we're, we're going to cruise here through uh, these last chapters in Mark. I'm very excited for some of these next coming sections here, but um, in due time here, we're going to be wrapping up Mark's gospel. So I'm going to be slowing it down a little bit tonight, or today, looking at this particular section. Um, so once you're there, Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. So uh, if you're there, go ahead and stand. We're going to read that together, and then we'll pray and jump into our study. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he, that being Jesus, left there. And went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is our reading for this morning. You can have a seat and let's pray. We'll uh, begin to process our time together this morning. Father, again, we are thankful for another Sunday, another privileged uh, day to be here. Um, I can already tell we're coming into the, the morning here with uh, tired uh, bodies, tired minds. And so I would just pray that in the next 45 minutes or so that we have together, that you would give us attentive ears, that you would spark in us an interest in this subject. This is something that is so important in a culture like ours right now, uh, even as it was back in Jesus' day. Um, so Lord, help us to get further into the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, even as we look at it through the uh, lens of, of marriage and the good design for it. Um, believe that this can be really uh, freeing and empowering for our students here this morning. So please give us wisdom as we process this. Give me clarity of thoughts as I uh, put this before them today. Uh, we love you. We are thankful for this chance. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I know we got a couple of different students here who do track and field. Who are my track and field athletes around here? Okay. Several of you. Awesome. Uh, how many of you? How many of you are high jumpers? Do we have any high jumpers? We got one. Awesome. Nice power to you. So that was actually something that was my background uh, for track and field. I loved high jump. I got to do that all the way even up into to college. And obviously the, uh, the point of high jump is to jump over a bar, set the bar as high as possible, and to be able to jump over it without hitting it, or more importantly, knocking it off. Uh, it's a really cool thing, and it's especially fun to watch people who are really good at it. 
I was not particularly really good at it. But in college, I had a teammate who was really good at it. So good, in fact, that he ended up winning the national championship in Division Three with a jump of like six feet ten inches. So if you don't know six feet ten, if you're interested in this, somebody who's like seven foot tall or like probably as tall as Jordan Bennett is, or he's got like a part of him. Think about somebody just jumping over that, right? Pretty insane. Pretty insane. But again, the idea is the higher the bar, the more challenging and the more difficult, but ultimately the better, right? The point is not to, uh, you don't see people setting bars low and celebrating jumping over something small. The higher the bar, the higher the reward, even though it is more difficult. Higher is good, higher is better. And I think that's a really important principle as we come to the uh, passages before us this morning, Mark chapter 10, as we look at what Jesus is going to teach us as it relates to marriage. Because I think what Jesus is going to teach us here in this section is that his standard for marriage is higher, and ultimately it is better than we even think. Jesus' standard for marriage is higher and better than we even think, because so often we actually maybe don't think of this as highly as we should. In fact, that's the case for the culture and the place where Jesus lived uh, in his day and age. Now, before we even jump into this this morning, I just want to acknowledge that it seems kind of odd to be talking about marriage. It seems kind of weird to be talking about marriage today in Mark's gospel, considering, uh, you know, the flow of things that we've been talking about in Mark's gospel. It seems like it has no connection to what we've talked about here in recent weeks. And we're going to talk about that more in just a second. But it also might just seem weird because, again, you're, you're teenagers, right? Like most of you, I'm willing to guess, are not really thinking too highly of marriage. Or maybe you are thinking about it more than you should. I don't know. Um, but... This is not something that's like on your radar, like, okay, maybe next week this is something that is going to be, be happening for me. No, it's, it's, it's still fairly distant in your life at this point. But today I think it will be profitable to see both Mark's connection of why he's talking about marriage at this point and also want you to be able to see this morning how this best prepares you for this stage of life one day, right? And to better appreciate it even now because, Lord willing, maybe many of you will one day be married. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. Doesn't mean that that's God's ultimate design for you, but it is a good thing. And so it's better that we learn these things now rather than for so many people. It's a matter of, I wish I would have known. And so we're going we're gonna to set the context here for, for why in the world Jesus is even being asked this question. Because again, it feels kind of random that he's approaching this here this week. But look at verse 1 of chapter 10 here. It says, and Jesus left there. Do you, do you remember where's the there? Where's Jesus been or where was he in the previous passage that we were talking about? Where was he? Yeah. What's that? Not Judah. Good guess, but not Judah. Somewhere where he's been for most of his Galilean ministry. What city? Do you remember what it was called? Start with a C. Yeah. What? Hmm? Capernaum. Okay, Capernaum. He's been in a place called Capernaum. So he is finally uh, officially moving 
away from his, his base of ministry, which was in the northern region of Israel and kind of the region of Galilee and particularly in the region of Capernaum. And now he is officially on the move towards Jerusalem where he will carry out the plan that he has now twice revealed to his disciples about what the Christ is supposed to do, that he is going to be betrayed, that he is going to be handed over to his enemies, he is going to be crucified, he's going to be put to death, buried, and rise from the grave. So this is kind of the beginning of his movement that direction. So everything from this point forward in Mark's gospel is Jesus on his way to the cross. And for the first time since Mark chapter 1, Jesus begins to move away from the northern regions of Israel and Galilee and moves south into the region of Judea. Notice it says beyond the Jordan. Now, that's an interesting phrase there, beyond the Jordan in Judea, because who else do we know about had a thriving ministry in that region beyond the Jordan River? Do you remember? Who else had a really thriving ministry in that region? Also mentioned in Mark's Gospel. Yeah. John the Baptist did. John the Baptist did. Absolutely. We're going to come back to that because that's important, I think, for what we're going to see in this story. But as usual, uh, Jesus, he's on the move. And I don't know if Jesus is just a slow walker, but word travels a lot faster than Jesus walks. Because Jesus, before you know it, is swamped with people. Crowds are coming uh, to meet Jesus, maybe to have him heal people. But, but above all, it says that as was his custom, he was willing to teach them. I love this because Jesus is always willing to be inconvenienced for other people. And so he takes time on his journey to stop and to teach and instruct the people along the way. So people were really excited to see Jesus, except for one group of people. One group of people that throughout the gospel has not been thrilled, and that's the religious leaders, and that in particular includes the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees were tired of all this attention that Jesus was getting, and they wanted to get rid of him. They saw Jesus as a threat. He was opposing so much of what they stood for. And so, verse 2, it says they come to him wanting to test him. They come wanting to test him. In other words, they want to set a trap. It's like any good hunters, we're kind of entering into the prime hunting season here. They're, they're wanting to, to lay a trap for Jesus to, to fall into so that his ministry might be over. And here's the test. The test comes in the form of a question, right? It's a quizzer. They come, the trap question is this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They come with a question about marriage and divorce. I don't know about you, but this is not exactly the theological trivia question that I would have expected them to ask, right? You would have maybe anticipated a question about the character of God, right? Like, if God is so good, why do evil things happen, right? That might be a trap question. Or maybe a question about the power of God, right? Can, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Or a question about creation, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? 
which was the chicken, by the way, in case you were ever wondering. But you, you get it. It's not really the question that you would think Jesus would be asked, right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What in the world is going on? Why does he get such a, a strange question at this point? Well, remember where Jesus is. We just talked about this a moment ago. He's in the region beyond the Jordan River where John the Baptist also had a thriving ministry. Now, let me ask you this. Going back to John the Baptist, what you remember about John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist get arrested for? Why was he arrested? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In particular, the king had been responsible for divorce and remarriage in ways that were highly inappropriate, and he didn't like that. Put John in prison, and eventually, it cost John his very life. So, what do you think the Pharisees are thinking? If we play our cards right here, and Jesus says the wrong thing, maybe he can meet the same fate as well. We don't have to worry about Jesus anymore. He's done. They're hoping his response put him, puts him at odds with the ruler so that he has reason to get rid of him as well. And so we can see there's a very reasonable political trap that has been set by this question. But we also recognize that there were different schools of thought on this subject, even among the religious leaders in that day and age. There were very strict standards and there were also very loose standards. In other words, the question uh, no doubt is meant to put Jesus at odds with somebody and prove to be divisive. Right? So Jesus says... Yes, it's absolutely allowed, then he's going to be at odds with somebody who doesn't agree with that. But he says if, it, if he says it doesn't, then he's going to put himself at odds with the rulers and the, the king at this time. It's a tricky question. It is a very impressive, at least from their perspective, trap. But what Jesus wants them to see, and he wants us to see as well this morning is that such a question reveals a sad misunderstanding of the marriage relationship. God did not design marriage to be easily dissolved. In fact, he didn't make it that way at all. And so in his response, Jesus wants to teach the Pharisees, the crowds, and even us to have a higher and better standard and understanding of marriage. And in so doing, I believe that he gives us this morning three necessary reasons for a higher standard of marriage. And we're going to look at those here this morning. Three necessary reasons for a higher standard of marriage. And the first one comes in verses 2 through 5 where we see that the reason we need this is because we often have a low and honestly selfish standard. Because we have low and selfish standards. So we see in verse 2, the Pharisees come with this question, and I love how Jesus is so wise in his responses. Notice that they ask him this question, and Jesus uh, flips it, and he asks them a question in return. And he asks them, well, what did Moses teach you? What did Moses command you? In other words, I love this, he's basically saying, what does the Bible say about this question? Good, good use of uh, argument for Jesus. Well, 
What does the Bible have to say? But even by mentioning Moses, he already anticipated where they were going to get their answer from. And he was correct because in verse 4, they referenced Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, which is the only place in the Old Testament where there's only, it's the only directive for, the divorce, for divorce in the Bible up until this very point. And so this is the, the section of Deuteronomy that they're looking at here. It's not important that you read through every single little bit of this here. But the point of this here, notice he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he keeps going on and on, he talks about how he can send her away with a, a certificate of divorce, but then verse 4, notice, because it says here, she remarries someone else, and then he divorces her as well, so she's been now divorced twice from this person, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before before the Lord. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit more here because we have to understand what's going on in Deuteronomy to understand its usage by the Pharisees and Jesus here. First of all, I want you to understand something very clearly. When you look at this passage up on the screen here, this text neither mandates or sets clear grounds for divorce. It neither mandates, in other words, says you absolutely have to, or gives a very clear standard for what uh, constitutes allowable divorce. Notice that above all, what this does is it helps regulate, right? It helps regulate. In other words, it sets the, the procedure for how it should be done, and in some ways, why it needs to be done this way. You know, it, it's interesting to note marriage in Israel had some very similar traits to our culture today. We think about in our culture today, weddings are a big deal. Weddings are celebrations. People spend months, sometimes years, or some, some of you might even be planning your wedding right now. Like it's, it's, a, it's a long process for people because it's a big, build-up, exciting moment. And yet, at the same time, just like our culture today, divorce was controversial and unfortunately even in that culture it was common we think to ourselves about the high divorce rate that we live in here today reality is it was really high back then too why because there was a loose usage of this phrase up here in verse one find some form of indecency in her some sort of indecency and this kind of comes to the point I'm getting at here in this section where we often have low and selfish standards. Because similar to our culture, marriage had become about serving your own personal desires. It was really a selfish thing. As soon as it was no longer meeting the desires for you, the man could dissolve the marriage if he wanted to. Uh, reasons for this were vast. And unfortunately, some of them would be funny if they weren't so sad. But this idea, the, for many of the religious leaders, uh, they, they started to find basically all kinds of interpretations to what indecency meant. In other words, it became more about, well, if she no longer is favorable to you. So there's a couple different ways that this was done. And I'm not even making this up. There's writings that prove this, right? So, for example, if... The wife messed up dinner. 
burnt the toast, right? Whatever it may be. You could say that you had grounds for divorce. Oh. If maybe she said something unkind about your parents, right? Bringing the in-laws into it. Had grounds for divorce. And get this. Some even wrote that if the man found someone else more attractive, beautiful than her, suddenly had grounds for divorce. It's pretty sad and pathetic, isn't it? God gave Moses regulations for divorce as a means of protection, primarily not for the, for the man here, but really, if you notice, it's, it's really for the sake of the woman, so that she would not be treated, uh, treated like some type of uh, amateur trading card game, as if she could just kind of be in marriage, out of marriage, however, just the, the men would maybe abuse and take advantage of her situation. The reason this had to be done in verse 5, according to Mark chapter 10 here, Jesus said was because of the hardness of the human heart. Because man, and woman for that matter, can often have low and selfish standards for what God designed marriage to be. And if we're honest, we still see that today. We could talk about all the unfortunate ways that this was practiced in this culture here, but we still see that today, don't we? Right? You've heard people say about their marriage, we're just, we're in different places. We'll just go in different directions. Uh, they're just not the same person anymore. I've heard people even say before, we just, we, we just fell out of love. You know, we fell into love, now we fell out of love. All of it, a great misunderstanding of what God intended marriage to be in the first place. And so the reason we must have higher standards of marriage in accord to what Jesus is teaching here is because so often our desires are self-focused. Our standards are low. So no wonder divorce is common, not just in our culture, but even amongst Christians in the church today. And it's sad and it's pathetic and it's a, a, a great blemish on the character and the glory of God. And it breaks my heart to see so often the church be a mockery to Jesus because of these very things. And so what Jesus then comes at here with understanding that there must be a higher standard for marriage, he, he transitions here in verses 6 and 9 because... Really, this is God's original and good design. The reason we have to have a higher standard is because it's part of God's original and good design for us. So Jesus, at this point, takes control of the debate. He kind of turns it over to the Pharisees at the beginning, trying to get them to kind of reveal where they're at uh, in this debate. And Jesus now takes things over. And he takes them even further back in the writings of Moses. He goes from Deuteronomy all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Notice he begins verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of creation, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. But... Meaning, even though Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 24, this is not what God intended. This was not God's design. 
God's original design was one man and one woman forming a loving, committed, permanent, earthly relationship with one another. I mean, there's so much that we could go into this single passage here in Genesis about God's design for only two different sexes, male and female. Man, that is a hot-button culture topic today, is it not? Or about how marriage is just for a man and a woman, right? Another controversial thing in today's culture, even though this is very clearly spelled out that this is God's design. But the teaching that Jesus wanted to emphasize then, and we need to hear now, is what he says in verse 9. Look at what he says in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man, what? Separate. You could look at all the the other finer details of Genesis chapter 2, but at the heart of what Jesus and what God himself is trying to teach you and us this morning is what God has joined together, this marital relationship, no one should separate. That is not God's design. This uh, summer... I was doing a project outside. Our deck was in need of bad repainting. It was, it was getting stripped pretty good, and so we had to, to get it repainted. But before I could repaint it, I had to replace some boards because we had some boards that were rotted on the, the deck. And so I thought to myself, this is going to be a fairly easy project. I'll just you know pop off these boards, just take the screws out, replace them with some new ones, cut and paste. Not too bad. Until I realized that a number of the boards, because of the ways that they were screwed together and because of how deep the screws had gone, uh, screws weren't coming out of the boards. Uh, It was proving to be a more complicated process than I realized because I couldn't just, just pull them out. I couldn't just unscrew them. The only way that I could do so was go over and borrow my neighbor's special saw so that I could cut the screws away from the deck because they would not come apart. The only way to dissolve the the situation was to actually have to physically cut it apart. It was that difficult. You see, when we think about marriage, when we think about God's good design for marriage, we recognize that two things that were put together should not easily be separated. You know, when I was trying to, to fix the deck there, I realized that the only way for these two things to come apart was it was going to require further damage. It was actually going to be worse in many ways. It was going to require cutting and breaking and damage, right? It's exactly what happens when we try to undo what God has meant to be permanent and fixed together. Some of you have experienced the hurt and the brokenness that comes from divorce and marital relationships. And I'm just here this morning to say, I'm sorry, because that's not what God designed. But it's no surprise that so often it leaves behind such damage because they were meant to be together. It's the way that God designed it. And we must always go back to the beginning to determine what is good and right in God's eyes. 
the original design for something is the good design. And I don't mean that in the same way that we talk about like a song or a movie because we talk about like remakes of movies or songs and we're like, well, the original is so much better. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're not just trying to improve upon something that existed. No, we're talking about because where this was done, it was created by God himself. And notice it was done before sin entered into the world. Before everything else was tainted by sin. It is with this marital relationship that God declared in Genesis all to be very good. So it's not just that this is just God's original design, but it's that it's God's good design. It's good, it's right, it's pleasing. It actually works towards our greater holiness and our greater favor. So we as Christians fight for this standard, not because we are cold towards marriage struggles, not because we believe homosexual marriage is an unforgivable sin. We do so because we believe it is good, and because it is good, it is God's very best for us. That's why we do it. And as we will soon see, this permanent union is one of the clearest pictures of God's permanent love for his people. There is so much more at stake than just marriage relationships. If you're a Christian, there is so much more at stake than just your own happiness. But before we get there, the third and final reason that we must have a higher standard for marriage is because it protects you and others from further sin. It protects you and others from further sin. The scene shifts in verse 10. And notice that it says that they are now in a house, which this was common in Capernaum. A lot of times they would go back to the house and they would have further discussion. Jesus would make more clear to the disciples what they were talking about. So we don't actually know where this house is because they're in a different region now. But they go into a house and uh, he, as custom, he shares more in secret with the disciples. Because the disciples had further questions about this. In fact, if you were to go over to Matthew chapter 19 and read the, the, the parallel passage to this where Matthew records it. Uh, the disciples were really wrestling with this. Uh, Jesus is teaching all this stuff, and they kind of conclude at the end of uh, Matthew 19 and verse 10. They even say this. They say, if these, are the, if these are the standards, if this is the highest standard that God has set for marriage, then maybe it seems better not to get married. <laughs> right? That's, that's them coming to this conclusion. That's how low the standard was in their day and age, that they're like, well, Man, if this is what God's calling us to, then whew, I don't, I don't know, if, I don't know. If we should be getting married, which is sad and also good at the same time because they're finally wrestling with the fact that yeah, this is not just about your personal gratification. This is not just what you can get out of it. This is so much bigger and better than you even realize. His teaching is nothing radical. It was God's original design, but because of the hardness of hearts and the low standards, people often think less of marriage than they should. And this leads to Jesus' bold statement about remarriage in verse 11. Notice what it says here. After the disciples asked him again about this matter, verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And you're like, how in the world do we get to this?
this point? Adultery? I mean, how could somebody be accused of adultery if he or she has legally been divorced? They've been legally divorced, then adultery is no longer a reasonable accusation, right? Well, think about what Jesus is saying here. Because if this relationship, even if it ended in divorce, because of the standards that God has put God has put in place, in God's eyes, should the marriage have ever ended in the first place? No. In God's eyes, they are still rightfully married since the marriage should have never ended. Divorce is happening because there's no real grounds for it other than just the hardness of heart and selfish desires. And then that person goes off and gets married again. Jesus says here very clearly, it's adultery. Because you are rightfully bound to your first spouse who you made a commitment to. Now, I recognize this morning that this opens up all kinds of thoughts and questions that, quite honestly, we just don't have the time for. Because there's a lot of questions that start to come then about divorce and remarriage and what's permissible and when and why and how. And, and I get that because I started to wrestle with all those things this week. And I started to think, what am I going to best say to help you understand those things this week? And I realized to myself that I myself, even though those are fine topics to talk about I myself am almost falling forward the trap, which is to get off the subject, which is that Jesus is not placing the emphasis here on, well, so when is it okay to get out of marriage or when is it not? And the focus is actually on, here's the high standard. Here's what you're supposed to be shooting for. Stop focusing on the, when am I finally able to get out of a marriage? When is it permissible for me to do so? Even though I understand that there are times you have to think about that. Jesus says, my focus is here. Stop getting your sights on, get your sights off of all the, the, the contingencies of how do I get out of this and start focusing up here on this is God's good design. This is what you should be striving for. And again, I want to be sensitive because I know some of you are part of uh, families where divorce has been real. Remarriage has been a very real thing. And so if you have questions about those things, I'm happy to talk about them. Because there are places the Bible talks about where divorce is permissible. And remarriage is permissible in a way that is not necessarily sinful. But to, to try to go into all those things now and here would distract from the greater purpose of what Jesus is striving for. No, he's calling them to the high standard which protects marriage. And not only protects marriage, but also protects others from being dragged into your sinful and selfish choices. And so with the last 15, 20 minutes we have here, I want to just maybe talk about some of the, the applications, some of the things that you need to think about from a passage like this, because you probably do have some thoughts that are going through your mind. And so these are some of the few things that, as I look at this passage, I think are important for us to think about this morning. First of all, Sacrificial service is at the heart of a long-lasting, God-glorifying marriage. Sacrificial service is at the heart of a long-lasting, God-glorifying marriage. 
And in many ways, I mentioned to you guys before, because it feels kind of odd that this subject of marriage comes up so randomly, like it comes out of nowhere, when Jesus has been talking for several chapters about following him and the sacrifice of following him. But think about, think about what, think about what we've been talking about. At the heart of being a follower of Jesus is what particular attitude? Do you remember? What particular attitude lies at the heart of being a follower of Jesus? Yeah. Humility. Humility, that characteristic of thinking, <laughs> thinking more lowly of yourself, necessarily thinking more lowly of yourself and more highly of other people. Chapter 10, while it seems like it might be out of, out of place and some random topics that Jesus is going to be looking at, I think what he's getting at here is that he's teaching the disciples how following him is going to show up in everyday life. A lot of times we think about what just it looks like to follow Jesus in just a personal relationship with him. But here's the deal, student. You're not just in a personal relationship with Jesus. You're in a relationship with other people. And your relationship with Jesus impacts your relationship with other people. This is the nitty-gritty of how your walk with Jesus shows up everywhere. And it impacts everything you do. It's not some compartmentalized religion where you just say, I got my relationship with Jesus over here. I got my marriage over here. I got my job over here. I got school over here. I got my sports and my extracurriculars over here. No, he's saying this is how Jesus shows up everywhere. It impacts everything you do. And in particular, how that attitude of humility and sacrificial service is essential. And I would say all of this, all of this, student, is slowly and steadily building up to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says this, kind of the culmination of all this section. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And demonstrated that most clearly to give his life as a ransom for many. At the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus is to be a sacrificial servant. And you better believe that that shows up in your marriage. It shows up in your relationships with your friends. It shows up in your relationships with your peers and your teachers and your coaches. It shows up everywhere. Laying down yourself for the eternal good of others that's what love is. And so, yeah, to have a, a long-lasting, God-glorifying marriage, it cannot happen without sacrificial service. In other words, putting the needs of others above your own. Not having selfish standards, but sacrificial standards that say, I am here to help serve this person. Because together we can glorify God by doing so. Not surprisingly... A marriage without sacrifice will ultimately fail. A marriage that lacks this humility, that lacks this type of sacrificial service, student, it will fail. And here's what I mean. 
Because failure does not necessarily mean divorce. It certainly includes it. It certainly does include it. But a marriage that does not have sacrifice and patience and love and humility and a seeking the good of the other person will be met with hurt. It'll be met with arguments and coldness and selfishness. Yes, that, that, is, that is a failure. That is not living up to God's good design for what he meant marriage to be. And so we have to take that part that we have to understand. Well, the reason so often poor divorce and broken marriages and even just really bad marriages for that matter is because of the hardness of human heart, according to Jesus, which lacks sacrificial service. So we must always come back to that understanding that the reason that there's, there's marital strife and struggle so often is because of this very reality. The third thing, which it shouldn't come as a surprise because this is very clear in, in Scripture. We've heard this before, and, but it just seems pertinent for what we're talking about this morning. is just the idea that God hates divorce. As if we hadn't made that point clear enough. This is not God's desire. This is not God's design. And because of that, he hates it. I, I have to watch myself in our household right now for girls because anytime I use the word hate, it's like seen as like a curse word, which because we make it very clear, we don't use the word hate as it relates to people. But so often they'll still hear me say like, you know, oh, I hate that something is happening, like something that's going on. So they always call me on this word hate. And to some degree, rightfully so, because the word hate has some big connotations to it. And so it's weird for us to think about the, the idea that God hates something. Or that, as we read in Deuteronomy, that God finds certain things abominable. That's, that's, that's pretty strict. That's pretty heavy. And yet that is the very language that God uses in Malachi 2.16 about divorce. I mean, we should be greatly concerned over times in Scripture when God hates or considers something an abomination. And we should not be quick to just want to do what feels easy or most convenient, which kind of leads me into our fourth, and I would say maybe the most important point for you to think about here this morning, is that we live in a culture right now where we are constantly tempted to choose happiness over holiness. This is, this is where I want to just take an important principle from this text and ironically I want to divorce it just from the passage for a little bit in other words I want you to see its applications beyond just marriage I want you to think this morning student where is it that you might be seeking ease or comfort at the expense of being obedient to Jesus because at the heart of this passage and this problem is something that relates to all areas of your life, right? This is no longer just about marriage, but so often you are tempted to choose what makes you happy rather than what makes you holy. And you're doing so in the name of happiness because you have bought the lie that our culture promotes today, which is this. God wants you to be happy. That sounds really good on the surface, doesn't it? And in fact, if someone were to say, <clears throat> to ask you, 
you know, where in the Bible does it say that God wants you to be happy? You would be tempted to think to yourself, well, where is it? Where does the Bible say that? Well, the reality is, the Bible says that in certain contexts for sure, but not at the expense of your holiness. Again, this is, this is a lie that comes out of our culture where we say, well, God's greatest desire for you is that you would be happy. God wants you to be happy above all else. So therefore, if it is something that you do and it makes you feel happy, that must be from God, so you should pursue it. But do you see the danger in that? Do you see the, the trap that that sets for you? That ultimately what is right and your perfect standard in this world is what makes you happy because what happens when it no longer makes you happy especially in a marriage you see issues so this is where you have to understand yes God desires for you to be happy within the context of his standards Here's, here's the thing that you have to understand, and this, I understand because this is so hard, I have to remind myself of this all the time as well, is that God's design for your happiness, the pathway to pursue that is through his righteous standards, through his path towards holiness. In other words, you will only truly know what it is to be happy in God if you pursue his way of doing things. So yeah, marriage, absolutely, that's one of them. But so many other areas in just your life and how you think about living obediently for him. You have to always remember holiness, righteousness, conforming to what God wants for you, not what this world wants from you, will ultimately produce. And here's what you have to understand. Yes, that's not always easy. In fact, sometimes it's going to be downright harder. God never promised that the obedient way is going to be the easy way. In fact, Jesus, if anything, over the last couple of chapters has reminded us that the, the right thing, the thing that, that conforms most to his standard, is going to be the most sacrificial and the hardest thing. But it will bring forth the greatest reward. Yes, marriages may be hard. They may not be happy. They may come with real struggles. But God's desire is not that Christians give up because we, are, we just aren't happy anymore. No, he desires to work and to strive and to pursue, especially student trust, that God's ways are good even though they are hard and often require much sacrifice. And then I want to end with this point here this morning because we're running out of time. That Jesus would never divorce his bride, the church. This is, this is the point I wanted to get to here just to, to really end on this crescendo here. This is the very principle that we talk about in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be talking about it a few Sundays from now uh, as we get further into our Ephesians study and uh, main service. But think about this. This is, where, this is where Paul writes about how Christ and his love for the church is a reflection of the marriage relationship, or really the other way around, the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ in his church. He says that the man should love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he should cherish her as Christ does the church. Jesus constantly sacrifices for the good of his marriage to the church. 
And we could never, I hope, fathom a situation where he gives up and divorces the church, right? Because that's all about our relationship with him. Even when we are unfaithful, even when you mess up, Christian, imagine to ourselves, man, if God just decides, you know what, I'm done. I'm divorcing them. I'm done with them. We could never fathom a situation like that. No, he holds us fast and he reminds us constantly of his love. See, this is why our marriage relationships reflect so much about the character of God. Because when we live in sacrificial God-honoring, long-lasting marriages, we put the picture of Jesus and the church on display for the watching world. That's glorious. That is so much bigger. And student, that is so much better than we even think. I hope that that's been helpful for you as we've thought about this this morning. Again, I recognize there's probably all kinds of questions that that might still produce. So if you have any, please come talk to me. We'd love to process it with you. But let me pray and get you guys on your way. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the sweet privilege to talk on this very important subject. I pray that it has been helpful and insightful. And Lord, above all, I pray that it is just another avenue in which we've explored the depths of what it means to live lives as your followers. To understand that we exist to be humble and sacrificial and to put the eternal good of others above our own. We want to serve you. We want to love you. We want to understand how this changes everything we do and who we are and what we exist for in this world. So please continue to conform us to the image of your son, knowing that it is for our good and for your glory. Amen.